Welcome to Rage Against the Mainstream, your full-spectrum source for all things music insight and opinion. Today's date is September 13th, 2021. My name is Bill, and I'm pleased to welcome back the one and only Michael. Hello, everyone. How's everybody doing? <laughs> How you doing this uh, morning? Actually, this is probably one of the earliest recording sessions we've ever had. Yes. Yes, trying to get the cobwebs out of my head. <laughs> so, um, have you encountered anything new or interesting in the past i don't know how long it's been it's been about a year since you've been on the show yes one thing i i, I discovered since i'm a big fan of, of genesis old genesis um is that their light show that they use they they had a company called shoko that was their lighting company when they first started doing big shows and shoko came up with this an idea of the moving head on the light so that the lights would appear to move on stage it actually would and they would change colors, so, and it became to be called a very light. And now everybody has them. Clubs have them. The theaters have them. Everybody has them. But this all started back in 1980, and Shoko was, um, did the lights for Genesis. And Genesis saw this and immediately put $1 million behind the design of these very lights, and they used them exclusively, exclusively, on their tour and it kind of changed lighting because all now before this lights would just go on and off on and off the red light would go on then the green light would go on and that would be it light shows were very static yeah the very light everybody's used to seeing it now but you look on stage and these lights and they move and they do all this stuff that all started back in 1980 from Shoko and the original uh, invention was backed by Genesis and that's why they were the first ones to use them on the tour. So I found that out, which was pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty neat. I mean, I guess it's one of those things you never really think about that kind of stuff. And that's like, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's like what everyone uses now. Yeah. Like, I mean, and that was probably the predecessor to like the pre-programmed everything that, I mean, any everyone uses pre-programmed, you know, stage shows now. Yeah, computer, like everything's done. Nobody, nobody does this with levers anymore. It's all done with the computer program yeah and the song you push up the computer program and everything moves by itself and the lights all move all by themselves before everything was done by hand and um yeah it was, it's a, that was the beginning of the uh fully automated light show that was yeah. the beginning of it and then after that rush got really into it uh i remember seeing rush back in 83 they were using their very lights and multimedia they were one of the first rush was one of the first bands that i saw do a a full multimedia show with a, a giant video screen in the background that was playing images or movies, and it was all synced up to the music along with the lights and the very lights. So it was the start of the multimedia show when you went to see a concert. You just, before that, it was just kind of go and see the band play, and you watch the band play, and the lights turned on and off. About it. And this was the first beginning of the show. That's just crazy, yeah. And just to what it would, what it, what it's going to become after that, yeah. at that point, it's just wild. I mean, anyone that's ever been to a concert at a reputable venue knows exactly what you're mm -hmm. talking about. <laughs> yeah, when we go in, that's amazing how we go into these theaters to play shows, and um, you look around, and all these theaters have twenty very lights now, and um, the whole media the the screen behind us all the time playing our videos that we have for the songs and they just plug in a USB stick into the computer and they play the video <laughs> and they have the lights program and the very light. It's, it's just about in every single theater now. That's just amazing. insane. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the past week on Netflix, I checked out this documentary called count me in. Um, it's centered around a bunch of different drummers, but uh, like the most notable ones that are in there is uh, Stuart Copeland, obviously from the Police, um, Taylor Hawkins from Foo Fighters and Alanis Morissette, Chad Smith of Red Hot Chili Peppers fame, uh, Chicken Foot, and a bunch of other projects. Uh, Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden and Roger Taylor, obviously from Queen. Um, <clears throat> it was basically just like a documentary about drumming. That's literally all it was, and um. From, you know, like the early rock bands talking about Ringo and Charlie Watts and all those guys all the way up until like the introduction of the drum machine, 
and then until now. I mean, I wish they would have covered a little bit more of like the more modern type, like metal drummers. Cause I feel like there's like a lot of, uh, I feel like there's a lot of talent there and a lot, you know, I mean, uh, you've seen countless videos, a lot of the metal drummers and I mean, I'm not saying they're, you know, uh, you know, Stuart Copeland or uh, a Roger Taylor, but you know, in their own wheelhouse, they're, you know, they're, they're equally as good. They were influenced by those guys. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I thought it was extremely well done. Um, it kind of reminded me of that hired gun movie, the, the movie with the, um, or the documentary with all the, you know, the studio guys. It's kind of, yeah. it kind of reminded me of that. But all in all, it wasn't too bad. Um, came out in 2021, uh, directed by Mark Lowe. And uh, you find it on Netflix. But, yeah, that's pretty much all I found that was new and interesting. I mean, among, like, a million YouTube videos that I watch. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was about it. Yeah, the, the drummers, um, there's so many influential drummers that bridge the gaps between, you know, pop music like Ringo uh, in the beginning was straight, straight playing. And then he kind of started doing the different things than just the straight beats. Yeah. And listen to like Sergeant Peppers or those. Um, and then, and then it went farther uh, with some of the later bands, the drummers started doing different beats. They weren't sticking to straight two and four on the snare. And it's amazing how these drummers, they bridged the gaps between musicals, genres, uh, and allowed it to branch out. Oh, yeah. You know, and just having those basic starts. Yeah, that's just how yeah. they did it. And actually, recently, too, I was watching um, a Rick Beato video of uh, what makes this song great, Bohemian Rhapsody. And uh, they soloed out the Roger Taylor parts. And it was just like, it's so big sounding his drums his drum sound was it was just incredible i mean i'm more i'm more partial i'm partial to like the 90s type snare sounds i'm not into that like the like like, i like a like a thin like snappy type snare sound but it was just like for what that was at that time it was such a big huge sound i feel like a lot of uh I feel like a lot of a lot of modern music misses that kind of feel, you know. And the the, the contrast between somebody like Stuart Copeland, who's mm-hmm. very snappy, very yep. thin sounding, you know, and then you get into somebody Roger Taylor, who more is more of the Queen was more of a stadium type sound. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just big and open. Yeah, it meant to fill a room. Yes. <laughs> right. But yeah, um, it was a very very good documentary. I can't stress enough to. Check that out. On this day in music history. On this day in music history. September 13th. I'll let you start this off, Michael. Okay. In 1988, NWA founder Eazy-E releases his debut solo album, Easy Does It. Um, I've never given it a full listen I do know the the title track Easy Does It and I know that he did a uh I think a re-release of Boys in the Hood. Um Yeah, I mean I never really found Easy E to be like an incredible rapper. And I mean he obviously was like a pioneer in gangster rap yeah. and everything, but I you know I think there was way better talents, especially within the NWA camp than Easy E. <laughs> He's not as well known as the other the other two from NWA, but from what I did research and looked at it, he was one of the driving forces behind it, and one of the he was like the founder. Yeah, yeah. Along the, with the founder of Ruthless Records. Yeah, and so he got the whole L.A. rap scene kind of going. Yep. And he's not really that well known as the other guys. Yeah, exactly. To, to the Ice layman. Cube and Dr. Dre. Yeah, not to the yeah. layman. You know. Yeah. Does not know who this person is. But they know who the other people are. Oh, yeah. And he was bigger in the foundation of it than those other guys. Yep. And so. that's another one, too, if you never saw it, was um, Straight Outta Compton. Yes. That, yeah. the, the, the um, uh, biopic, yeah. That that was incredible, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving along here to 1990. Eddie Vedder does some surfing, writes some lyrics, and adds his vocals to three instrumental tracks recorded by the guys he would later join in Pearl Jam. 
Those songs become alive once and footsteps. So this is obviously pre 10 and this is right. I believe as temple, the dog is happening and um, yeah, obviously way, way huge mega things on the horizon there for Eddie Vedder in 1990. <laughs> uh, okay. 1994, the notorious B I G releases his debut solo album, Ready to Die. It's the first album issued on Sean Combs' Bad Boy label. Um, For those of you that haven't heard Ready to Die, I don't know if, you, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'm not, no. <laughs> no. Um, Ready to Die was, in my opinion, I believe that was like the turning point in hip-hop to where... Like, obviously, the gangster rap thing was happening and everything before that. But 1994 was kind of the it was kind of the turning point of like rap and hip hop being like this underground thing to having it become this huge, huge, like, you know, um, it's where I'm looking for here. Mainstream. Yeah. Like giant, like mainstream type genre. And this album, in my opinion, was definitely one of the, the forerunners in that. And I mean. If anyone's ever listened to Ready to Die, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, moving two years later here in 1996, Tupac Shakur, who was 25, died after six days after being shot while riding in a car driven by his label boss, Suge Knight. No arrests were made in the case. Um, I'm not all into, I'm not going to get into the conspiracies here about everything, but, um, there's a little bit more to that story. And I think it's kind of coincidental that uh, he dies two years after Ready to Die comes out, considering the Biggie and Tupac beef that happened that exact year. Yeah, they didn't. They did not. These rappers from 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 L.A. that they just did not like each other. No, absolutely <laughs> not. And to put it mildly and. And for it to come to something like that, it's a shame because you're taking talent away mm-hmm. um, just over a personal feud where it should really come together and make better music you know, uh, than try to, to, to kill each other or, or get rid of each other so you can have more of the limelight on yourself. Yeah. It's counterproductive. It, it was counterproductive for the whole genre even though it was part of it the violence was part of the genre it still was counterproductive uh they still could have done both yeah exactly i mean there, there's obviously huge conspiracies in between the the deaths of notorious big and uh tupac and there's obviously some uh left to interpretation of how their feud and beef actually started and it's um it's kind of clearly displayed in, uh, I believe it's notorious that biopic and they were, they were friends. And then someone had set him up, set Tupac up and he got shot outside of a recording studio that Biggie Smalls was in. And then it escalated from there. It's, uh, it's just sickening. (laughs) There was still a few more good albums left in both of them. Yeah. You don't, you don't see, um, Ed Sheeran, um, running around with a gun trying to, to shoot the Taylor Billy, Swift. Yeah, Taylor Swift or, or, or Billy. Billy Eilish. Eilish. Yeah, they're not running around waiting outside of clubs with guns and cars trying to shoot each other, even though yeah, exactly. their music is in competition with each other. They're not going to, you know, do that. Yep. I mean, the Stones weren't didn't hire guns to try to kill the Beatles, you know, even though they were in competition with each other. It's just. Yeah, exactly. It was a friendly competition. Yeah, it was a friendly competition. Yeah, and they both knew that. Yeah, you didn't have the Beach Boys going to war with the Beatles. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, it got out of hand, just a little. <laughs> okay, two thousand, almost famous is released in theaters across the U.S. The film is a semi-autobiographical account of writer and director Cameron Crowe's. Time spent interviewing rock bands for Rolling Stone in the 70s when he was just a teenager. The film centers around a fictional band called Stillwater 
and rather than being based on one band in particular, Stillwater feels like every 70s arena band rolled into one. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that that Stillwater is supposed to be like a culmination of like Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, and Leonard Skinner. Like that that's what he was going for with that. So it's kind of funny that it's almost like a true story. It's one of my most favorite favorite movies. Every time I see it on, I I just sit there and watch it. Oh yeah, it's, it's a great movie because it's so true. Um, everything you see behind the scenes. With bands, it's true. It's what happens. Um, it just—it's, I guess, it's nature. The way when you have people together like that, that there's going to be friction, and eventually, uh, the egos come out and break the bands apart. Um, it's just the whole the way the movie was done was great. Oh yeah, I thought it was a phenomenal movie. I always have to watch when it's on TV too. And <clears throat> this poor little kid is getting jostled around when he's just trying to write a story <laughs> and he's being taken over by the groupies and the band and the band messes with them and and but it's it even goes on today there's there's always a ongoing feud between music critics and actual musicians it mm-hmm. never ends nope it never ends and um that was just the start of it especially with rolling stone <laughs> <laughs> uh moving on here to 2009 speaking of um what we were talking about earlier with feuds and everything taylor swift wins the best female video at the mtv movie awards kanye west comes on stage and commandeers the microphone explain that beyonce deserved the award for single ladies video when beyonce does win for video of the year later that night she brings taylor on stage to finish her speech that uh I remember watching that when that yeah, happened, yeah. and I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm going to let you finish, but Beyonce had the best video of the year. And it was like, what? This proves <laughs> that Kanye West is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it just proves. <laughs> yes, and Beyonce was this, the level-headed one. Yes. Who came up at the end and brought Taylor Swift. Poor Taylor Swift. Yeah. Even though you know, Taylor Swift <laughs> is Taylor Swift, but I mean, still... Bringing her back up to, to, to finish her speech and everything. Well, this is also 2009, so she wasn't like the Megalodon star she is no, now. No, I mean, she at this point, I believe she was just crossing over into the pop, the yeah, pop from thing country. from country music. But yeah, I mean, could you imagine that? Like your first time at like one of these like at an MTV Music Video Awards and Kanye West rips a microphone out of your hand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, if I remember correctly, I think Beck was the one that gave her the award. Or he was the one that the you know like the the announcer or whatever yeah the presenter, presenter. yeah and uh, I remember like seeing his face and he was just like what do I do <laughs> yeah <laughs> what do I do that's uh, funny <laughs> it's like when the guy guy from Family Feud announced the wrong Miss Universe what yeah, do I right. do now I announced the wrong name yeah, it's a deer in the headlights okay and in two thousand nineteen. Eddie Money dies of esophageal cancer at 70. And I, I was just remember Eddie Money when he first first became a, a um, star, I guess you call it, uh, way back in 1978 when his first couple hits, Two Tickets to Paradise and Baby Hold On. Uh, and he, was, he came from being a cop. I think it was a Brooklyn cop and, and he just had some songs and one thing led to another and here he is a music star. <laughs> and and um, from what I understand, he was always a down-to-earth guy. He was one of the good guys and uh, they started even started that show that was popular. Yeah, uh, what was it called? Real Money or yeah. Easy Money or something? Yeah, on TV and yep. they, they showed him and his family and and it was a fun show and it was, and it was really a shame. It seems like the good guys, this, this happens. And, um, he died at 70, which, and he was just trying to make a, starting to make a comeback on the show and he was mm-hmm. going on tour again with his daughter and, and they were doing good things together and, and it's just a shame that he was cut down like that. Well, I guess he got one ticket to paradise. Yeah. 
<laughs> so <laughs> going back to the whole Taylor Swift and Kanye West thing, they were part of I guess I guess we can call it like a movement in music to where well Kanye West came well before Taylor Swift, but they're both part of like a generation of music to where they never really had to like strive or work as hard as artists before them to get to where they are. I feel like this is a perfect segue into what our topic is going to be today, which is when and how did music die or not die, but when, when did music not, when, when did music lose its luster or magic? I guess we could say, um, I guess there's a couple different takes that you could have with this particular topic, but I actually have a few, I have a few red letter dates here in music history written down. Okay. <laughs> um, starting off August 1st, 1981 MTV was, uh, created or first aired. I remember, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> my, my theory behind this is, is that when MTV came on, it became about the image and it became about money as opposed to the art and the integrity of the music. You think of the acts that came pre MTV and you think of the acts after MTV. At least that's the way I would think. The next date that I have here, it's actually not a date. It's just a period in time. September of 1997, Andy Hildenbrand PhD created auto tune. <laughs> Uh, the first song ever to feature it was Cher's Believe that oh. came out a year after. Yes, that uh, song. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, a year after that, after Cher's beautiful uh, number one hit, uh, Napster came out, mm -hmm. which was, uh, the you know, I don't know how many... Uh, Gen Z's or millennials we have that listen to the show that don't know what Napster is. But for those of you that don't, Napster is a file sharing site that was, um, it, rev it revolutionized how music and everything was consumed. Um, one of the downsides to this was it was also the first time for various independent artists to be able to, to, be able to distribute their music to a wider audience. And, you know, if I, I think me and Steve had talked about it one time that like you try to download something and it wound up being like some like underground rapper that like disguised his song as like a 50 cent song. So now you're listening to this dude's music and then you finally find out who he is years later. <laughs> um, next one here is August 1st, 2003. MySpace was invented and came online. Um, yet another way for unknown artists to connect with potential fans, record labels, and various management. And, um, I mean, I was part of the MySpace generation and I used to love picking my songs to put on my playlist when you'd show up. <laughs> um, next one is February 14th, 2005. YouTube was invented. <laughs> um, anyone could publish anything. Um, it was starting to be the beginning of like views and, Streams and everything counting towards record sales and stuff like that. And then April 3rd, 2006, Spotify was invented. Um, streams equaled record sales and anyone can publish or make money from it. Now, I feel, I know that this is just a bunch of dates just thrown out and there's no context behind any of them, but there's a natural progression here. The autotune thing was just for jokes. I mean, there, there is some people that truly need it. And that's fine. But the fact of Napster, MySpace, YouTube, and Spotify, it made it to a point to where you no longer had to have money to be able to promote your stuff. You didn't need, you know, a big team of record executives, by, you know, the nice table. You didn't need any of that anymore because you could just, here, here's my song. <laughs> um... The MTV one thing was a joke too. I mean, obviously, there's now, there's a lot of bands from MTV. <laughs> M MTV was a was a big thing because it turned when everybody there were some ugly musicians out there, <laughs> and, and but made great music, and 
to all of a sudden have to be every song had to have a video now. Yeah, right. <laughs> and that was the thing. Like, oh, you get, we got a new song, we're releasing a new song off your new album. We got to do a video to go along with it. <laughs> and it was like, oh, oh, these people aren't very good looking. What are we going to do with them? <laughs> but a, a lot of music became more fashion related. Yes. Before MTV, it was more about the music, even though there was some fashion involved. I mean, you got David Bowie, mm-hmm. Elton John, people with the flashy outfits and things like that, which went along. Yeah. And you got Peter Gabriel dressing up in all kinds of outfits for Genesis because the music was very long and sometimes boring. And to, to, to complement the music, then all of a sudden it became the front thing was the fashion. Before it was a background thing, and then fashion became the front thing. What's the video look like? Who are we getting to produce the video? While they were recording the songs, they were trying to think of what video could go along with it. What video? <laughs> Before that, it was just, let's make good music. Yeah. Now it's just make good music, but which of these songs should we release would, off the album that would make a good video? Yeah, exactly. And so that it was a big change. It was a big change. Then, of course, you had Michael Jackson revolutionizing everything with the introduction yeah. of Thriller. <laughs> yes, he decided, I'm getting a big-time producer, yeah. director, and you know, I'm getting major effects that they use in movies. Yep. And, and that changed the music video, and it also changed and allowed all of these Hollywood directors, uh, either famous ones would do a music video, or people trying to become popular and get more work, they would start by doing music videos. Yeah. And people would see the music video and say, hey, this, this guy does a really good job on this music video. It's, then I'm going to do a short film. It's like, okay, your music video was great. Well, you can do a short film. Exactly. And then from there to movies. <laughs> there was no step there before. Now, and the music video became a step for, for young directors and also became a way for established, famous directors to do something different. Yeah. And, and do, you know, instead of just making movies, I also do music videos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was, it was, again, it's two, two, two ways to look at it, two, two good and bad. But uh, that's what MTV was all about. It, it turned it from music to more fashion. I call it fashion. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, those those kids growing up in today's time uh, they only know MTV for ridiculousness or <sighs> preteen mom and yeah you know just a bunch of stupid shows but at one point in time believe it or not they did have music videos yeah, it came, <laughs> yeah it came on the air about um every day i think it was about 10 a.m. or so and they played the same five music videos all day long and then it went off the air at 10 p.m. <laughs> and then after 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 three or four months, there was fifteen music videos that they would just keep playing, and go, and then it it blew up from there. Yeah, exactly. But then then when Jersey Shore came out, that changed the whole reality show thing, and yeah, then it went away. Then they came out with VH1 that people if people still want to watch music videos, they could go to VH1 and watch music videos. And the same, and then thing, the same happened. thing happened to them. So <laughs> and now, now they go to YouTube. Yeah, now that now there is no more VH1. I remember at one point they had VH1 Classic for a short period of time too, mm-hmm. and that was cool. They had they they had brought back pop up video for a short period of yeah. time, and then just in true Viacom fashion, they had to go and fuck it up. <laughs> and that's when you say that that's that's another reason why the um one of the deaths of of the music that we talk about growing up with or, or the, 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 the change had to do with the merger of the media companies that instead of 20 companies battling to get, to get you to listen to their content it all of a sudden became five mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden they controlled the content. They controlled what you, what you see and what you hear um, so they say, these are the songs that we want you to hear yep. and we're not in competition with anybody. We just, this is what we want you to hear. 
So this is what we they, we put out there. It was no longer trying to get good music and trying to get it under your yeah. label. And look what we got. We got this band. They're really good. We're going to push it, push it, push it. And these and these guys are trying to push. It was now, no, no, we're in control now. We'll we'll decide what you listen to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like a part of that had to do with like the whole like um like the hair metal movement of the eighties and that there were so many bands that they that these record labels they kind of flooded the market so then they were pulling it back to kind of go get back into control of what you were going to listen. Right, right. They want the again, they wanted the people with the big money to control what you and, and which ones they thought they could make the most money from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I've, I think I've read or heard from somewhere that um, a conspiracy, but that grunge was basically just a manufactured movement to kind of bring like control to the like the you know the the big labels. But when you get when you get into things like grunge, um, it was easier music to I don't say easier, but it wasn't as a complex a sound because it goes both ways. If you listen to the music of the seventies, pop music of the seventies and the eighties, some of it's very complex. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of layers. There's a lot of vocals. There's a lot of synthesizers. There's drum overdubs. There's guitar overdubs. There's all kinds of things going on. Very complicated. And they would spend a lot of time, a lot of money in the studios and they were backed by the record companies. And then the grunge movement was kind of um, anti-record company, uh, anti-big business. Like here, we can make this sound very simply. Yeah. Guitar, bass, and drums and somebody singing. (laughs) The heck with the expensive uh, studio time and you guys doing all, we're going to do it ourselves. Yep. Or not do it ourselves, but we're going to make it simple. Exactly. And the people caught on to that. And so there were more and more bands. Um, so they weren't as, I, say, I, want to say, I don't want to say talented, but the music was not as intricate. Yes. And so there was more musicians being able to play that type of music. So there was more of it being generated. So that created that whole sound and that whole movement. And it was more anti-establishment. And... And then when you were talking about MySpace and those things came out, there was a way of their getting them getting their music out. Yeah. Because they could record it in their garage using modern technology and getting it out. So it wasn't really a, a bad thing because it was they were going against that media control. Yeah. So even though some a lot of people don't like grunge or, or what it, but you got to realize what it stood for. It stood for, we're going, this is, it's just my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it was. It's an, all opinionated here, yeah, Michael. <laughs> it, 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 it was anti-establishment. It's like, we can make music much simpler and people are going to love it. And they did. A- and so it was a good thing. Yeah, exactly. Getting getting music out of them. And then, it, then again, the big commercial establishments came in and grabbed who they wanted to. Yeah. But, but still, there was that, anti-establishment type kind of thing going on. I'm actually checking right now because I wanted to be a hundred percent sure when I said it, but going back to the, um, the, the grunge and everything. Okay. Yeah. Nirvana's Nevermind was recorded in 17 days. Mm-hmm. 17 complete days. For reference, Def Leppard's Hysteria, which was probably around like the same hype and probably around the same record sales as, as Nevermind would have been. Obviously not now, but back then, Hysteria took three years. <laughs> that was the peak of... I, I was looking online, I was reading a lot about imperfection versus perfection. The old music, I don't want to say the old music, but the pre, I don't know what date you want to say, pre-2000, pre-1995. Pre yeah. Before that, back in the 70s, 
music, there was so much imperfection in recorded music, you know, because of the limits. And a lot of it was because of the limits of technology. Yeah. There was two inch tape. You had 16 tracks. You know, you, you did it over, you did a, a guitar solo over three or four times. And then you took the best take and kind of mixed it together. Or, or, but there was still a lot of imperfection. In there. there was still a lot oh, yeah. of guitar tuning. It was just a little off. But they didn't have the tape space or the time because studio time was so expensive to redo it. And, and the drums, there was a lot of drums weren't always exact. And a lot of times it was on purpose. There's some songs that were written um, that where the drums played behind the beat. And there was other other songs where drums played on top of the beat. And we did, when we used to write songs and and go in the studio and record them. Um, I mean, talking, I'm talking about huge, big studios with, with money. You know, you have 16 hours to do this because we paid for the studio hour. It was, the, the type of music was playing, the drummer played behind the beat or he played on top of the beat. He wasn't playing it wrong. It was just a, a feel. And that whole thing became the, to get lost in the 80s where it started to become more of perfection. Mm-hmm. Like the drums, okay, that snare is a little too late. That's the mix it. That's yeah. That's <laughs> changes so that it's right on the beat. And, and I think when you, when you brought up Def Leppard, that was like the peak where, you know, that many hours that, that long, just, just to do yeah. an album. Mm-hmm. Cause they had to get everything perfect and exactly right. Yeah, and that and that became like, oh, this is just too much. Mm-hmm. The imperfection's gone, the feel is is gone. The music's still good, but the feel is kind of. Well, that's where the mad the magic factor. That's yeah. where the magic is gone. Yeah, yeah. Like you listen to the you know the the original Led Zeppelin albums and you know basically anything pre nineteen eighty one. The only reason I say nineteen eighty one is because that's when drum machines started to take yeah. more and more precedents in recordings i well i think like sly and the family stone used uh it was a uh what the hell was it it was an oberheim in 1971 for um uh there there's a riot or uh, something like that along those lines but they used a, a drum machine for that and i feel like as they got into the 80s and you know you had more of these bands like uh like Duran Duran and mm-hmm. Flock of Seagulls, mm-hmm. stuff like that, and they are implementing these these drum machines. It takes out the the human factor of the music, and I feel like that's where that's where you start losing the touch of like having that that magic factor or you know the the thing for music. I mean, I don't care what anybody says you're not gonna you're not gonna replace ever the feel of a drummer. You, you just no. can't. <clears throat> you know, uh, it's a music is is music is about emotion. Yep, music is is an emotion. Uh, when when somebody writes a piece of music and and plays it and you hear it, the the artist is has emotion. The people hearing listening to the emo- it's, and it's meant to drive emotion to get emotion from the listener, whether it be sad or happy or. or or just, you know, information or protest songs or, or anything, whatever. Music is an emotion. And when they started doing these, when it got to perfection, it took a lot of the emotion out of the music. And it came to the point where, oh, well, we don't even need a drummer anymore. We'll just use the electronic ones because we want it on time. And we're fixing every note. Let's, let's just do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when it started to lose the feel and the emotion. Yeah, it takes out the human factor of it. Yeah. And even now, you know, with how easy it is to be able to record stuff at your home, I mean, it's just, it's easy. I mean, as if you have a, a cell, an iPhone now or an iPad, you can, you can record an album in your home and it's not hard. And, um, the problem with what comes with all that is it's, I mean, it's still difficult to record live drums. I mean, yeah. it's, it's actually a dying art form. Yeah. It is. And, um, 
what comes with that is you have drums that are perfectly in time. You have, you know, a grid and everything is perfect. And when I, I think it's uh, a line from the Disney movie, the Incredibles, it was like, um, when everyone's super, that means nobody will be. And if you're perfect, you know, it's the same thing. If, if everybody's perfect, nobody is. <laughs> I remember going, going into the studio to record just a single, just one song. I, we spent six hours just getting the drums mixed right, getting them mic'd up and getting the mix right just on the drums. Yeah. And then <laughs> came the bass. And then came the guitars and the keyboard. So just to record one song, it took us three days. And it wasn't because we were trying to get it perfect. We were trying to get it to sound good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and the emotion was there. And because, I mean, it was just trying to get it to sound good. It wasn't trying to get it perfect. We were just trying to get it to sound good. And um, we got it. We captured it and, it and it sounded good. Yeah. And the emotion was still there. You could hear the emotion in the music. And um, the same with vocals. The vocals from the 70s and in the, and the early 80s. People aren't singing totally on tune. No. The harmonies. There's a lots of voices cracking. <laughs> One of the most famous voice crack was um, voice cracking was on... Um, the Rolling Stones. Uh, give me shelter. Give me shelter. Yeah, yep. I read. Yeah, I read that. It's like that's one of the most famous lines that the voice cracked, and they left it in. I heard that voice crack actually induced a um, a miscarriage. On what? No, her. Like, <laughs> really? Yeah, like wow. when that happened, she pushed her voice so hard that she missed. She was pregnant. Oh, she miscarried. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how true it is, but right. that's something I've heard. <laughs> Another urban legend. And you were mentioning when you were mentioning dates, another another date that you can include is, is when Pro Tools came out. Oh my god. And now as before it used to be so expensive to record and they needed to have backing. You needed to have somebody with money or a recording company and so you needed studio time. It was expensive. It was on tape. The uh tape sounds better than digital because when you record something digitally just a side thing when you record something digitally and you go you know analog and digital converter or digital back to analog converter it loses it loses something and you all listen to an album that was recorded digitally so they they, had, they actually I have to create technology to make it sound like an analog recording to mm-hmm. make a digital digital recording sound like an analog Recording because an analog recorded sounded so good, but but you had all this money, and you had to go in the studio, and you had to, to spend all this time getting it to sound good on tape, and then, and as technology got better and um, computers computers got cheaper, uh, memories got cheaper, uh, medium got cheaper. They now could record directly onto hard disk. First, it was the ADAT. That was the one big thing, digital tape, where they could take the analog music and record it into a tape digitally. Uh, the Elysis ADAT was one of the first groundbreaking things. And um, then it went to hard disk recording. And then when the price came down and people could afford Pro Tools, anybody in their basement could take a drum machine and their guitar and a vocal mic and make a song. Yeah. And make it sound incredible. And... And then they can put it out there on MySpace or or now, now it's Spotify or whatever and say, here, everybody listen to my song. And I'm not saying that now it has a good side and a bad side. The bad side is their, their, their music writing skills, it takes time. It t- you have to learn how to write music mm-hmm. and how, how to, to get music to sound like a good song and and really you know put your heart and soul in it people were turning out just just mediocre music yeah just music <laughs> they weren't learning how to write yep and that's another thing that's becoming a lost art the art of writing music and so 
So people come, so you can get your music right, very quick after on MySpace or whatever. People, and then it turned around to the, to the people listening. The people listening became less critical of what they were hearing. So it's like, yeah, that sounds cool. And they were, so they were, they were bombarded with all this music and then kind of forgot what it sounded like back in the 70s and 80s when music was much more complex. And mm-hmm. so it kind of became the norm to have this music coming out of Pro Tools. So it was became more accepted. Yeah. I mean, it just falls right back into the whole, like the whole, uh, like, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. <laughs> You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's been plenty of artists to come out in the past, you know, 20 years that have actually, you know, produced and is able to produce really good music and, you know, go back to the original feels of, you know, in like invoking feelings and, yep. you know, emotions and whatnot. And, I, you know, there there is artists like that out there. Yeah, talented songwriters. Yes, but there's far more talentless, <laughs> you know, and I think my biggest gripe with everything is. A lot of the artists nowadays, and you look at songwriting credits, there's like 12 writers on a single song. I think like Beyonce had, uh, was it Beyonce? It was somebody I read, and there was like 12 writers on this one song. It was literal, just like nothing. It was just like, it was just garbage. And um, it's just like, well, there's no one able to write music anymore. Like, I mean. Too many hands. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm sorry. It's just, I just feel like there's a lot of talent that's gone. And, um, even nowadays, you know, with all of, you know, in the past, uh, you know, five years or so with all these influential figures and music dying, I feel like it's not making matters any better. No, no, especially it isn't, it isn't with some of the great musicians and, and songwriters. Nobody seems to be carrying, not many people seem to be carrying the torch. No. Forward. It, it, music has become, and because of the, the, the media companies um, uh, pushing the music just it becomes a package. Here's the person, and this music almost becomes secondary. It's like this this person and this personality and what they do and who they are. And here's their music. Yeah, you know the music doesn't come first. The music's last, and. The music is so simplified. I mean, when's the last um, pop song that had a guitar solo in it? It's been a while. And it's like, I hear all the music, and you can tell, first of all, right away, you can tell it's a drum machine. It's all done digitally. The bass part is played on on a keyboard from the bass sound that was in Pro Tools. And then you have the car guy playing the acoustic guitar and singing, or you have the girl singing, and the girl is the the girl or the guy is the person. It's, you don't see many hear many bands anymore. Now it's a person, mm-hmm. so it's easier to manage. It's easier to manage a person than a band. Yeah, <laughs> and um, it's becoming this prepackaged um, corporate thing that is a way to make money. And they push it on their media outlet, and it's what so it's forced down the public. So the public, they, I mean, they have a choice to turn it off, but it's being pushed on them so much that they latch onto it, and they become a fan of it because yeah. it was pushed on them. Um, people still have choices. There's more choices than ever because you have YouTube. I mean, you can make your own playlist and just listen to your favorite songs. The radio is like a dying thing now. They don't have, because the radio companies are all owned by one or two companies now, mm-hmm. all radio stations. So they don't, except for, I mean, the classic rock stations still play the old songs. But the the pop radio stations are owned so they're told what to play and they're going to play what these large multimedia, these large media companies want them to play. And you listen to that or you listen to your MP3 player of songs you put together. Mm-hmm. And people have the choice of doing that, but it starts becoming the same thing because of what's being pushed on them. And so it's, it's, it's not just one thing that has turned music uh, stale and monotonous. It's a combination of a lot of things. 
So I guess to kind of put a bow on this and wrap this thing up, do you feel like there is a defining like moment or anything that kind of started the, the, the chain, you know, the chain of effects that would ultimately lead to where we are now? Or do you think it's just the natural progression of how it is? And eventually we're just going to work our way back to the stone ages and start from scratch again. Um, I believe it was the, the defining moment was the corporate merger of all these um, media outlets from, from however many there are 20, 25, 30 down to just five. And they now have control of everything we hear and see. And I think them, that was more of the defining moment because you still have your indie rock that you use people because now it's to be bands doing it on their own with pro tools, Yep. but they do it with real instruments and it sounds good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, know, you have that underground movement that's still going. Mm-hmm. So it'll, that'll always be there. But what's up top, which is being pushed by the media companies, isn't as good as what it used to be because they want it quick packaged yep. and make money off it. Not, not like before. Yep. So that was more of the defining moment. The, the, the media companies merging and telling telling the listeners what they're going to... Um, what they should listen to. Yeah, what they should listen to. <laughs> There's always been that in the music business. There's always been payola. Yeah. I, I mean, we had... We had we, when the band I was in put in, got an album together and we wanted to get it played on the local... FM stations, WISP, WMMR, WIOQ, all, all these stations. We had to pay money. We had to do under the table stuff. And it's not a secret. Yeah. Do under the table stuff to get our stuff played. And they played it and people liked it and they played it some more. And, you know, but if you stop paying and stop doing it, they don't play it anymore. Yeah. You know, unless they're told by the bosses. And there was a lot more bosses back then. A lot You could get, you know, the yeah. little radio stations. But, that doesn't exist anymore. No, now everything's computer driven and everything's everything. Yeah. Everybody, everybody has a playlist that they're told by the, this is the songs you're supposed to play. <clears throat> yeah. And, and, and this is it. And it's the way it is. Yeah. So what do you think? Do you feel like we're way off with this whole thing? Do you feel like music is better now than it's ever been? Do you feel like, in the past 20 years, there's been a surplus of extremely good music that we're just not aware of or we're just, you know, ignorant to the fact of. Find us on our social media pages, Instagram and Twitter at RATM Podcast, Facebook.com slash RATM Podcast, YouTube search Rage Against the Mainstream Podcast. And of course, if uh, the social media outlets aren't enough for you to convey your opinion, you can find us at uh, retmpodcast at gmail.com. But let's move into our personal suggestions for the week. You want to start this one off, Michael? Yep, I'm going to go back to one of my favorite bands, um, uh, Genesis. Uh, it was a very controversial album. It was a very turning point for them when The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway because... Um, there was so much turmoil in the band at the time. And the, a lot of the music was written separately from the vocals. From the, It wasn't done as a group. Everybody was kind of at odds with each other. And Brian Eno came in. One, a, a, just became one of the great producers, record, record engineers, producers. And... That's the sound of that album completely changed Genesis. And if, and it's a double album. And if you listen to it, there's so much, um, I want to say special effects, but so much that went into the music, uh, the different effects that were used or vocals for different songs that were made the song different and made and fit the song. And the song wouldn't have been the same without this effect on this vocal. And there was such it was such a concept album. And the complexity of it, if you if you if you if you really listen to it, it really is, I think, probably their best album. 
So it's something if, if you're really in the Genesis and you want to hear, or if you're just into progressive music, or you want to hear something that was put together with a lot of time and thought, that's a good album. Nice. I mean, I've, I'm partial to Phil Collins Genesis, but. <laughs> right, right. That, then the music got a little simpler after that. Yeah. You know, um, but that album was just, the way it was put together was just, whoa. Brian Eno. And then it was Brian Eno. He was the guy that did, did all this. Esification, I think, is the term that they use. Uh, Eno, Eno, I can't pronounce it. There's a term that goes along with what Brian Eno does to your sound. <laughs> and uh, that album had it. <laughs> My suggestion for this week is to check out the 1972 album from the Doobie Brothers, Tulo Street. Um, the song that I'm suggesting is if you haven't heard this one before, then uh, obviously what me and Michael were just talking about was a hundred percent correct. And good music is dying. Uh, listen to the music um, produced by Ted Templeman, which um, obviously I thought we were going to be able to get through a podcast without the band in question being mentioned, but Ted Templeman, the <laughs> famed producer of such great albums as Van Halen one, two, <laughs> Women and Children First, the the whole beginning David Lee Roth era of Van Halen albums. Um, Ted Tupman, uh produced extremely good song, a lot of really good harmonies, really good musicianship. Just uh, hands down, just an entirely great album. And for the fact of it coming out in 1972 was, uh, I mean, I don't want to say groundbreaking by any means, but it was definitely... Um, they were forced to be reckoned with with this album and with this particular song, and just you know, as technology was progressing, how good of a song that people were you know able to make in 1972. Yeah, that's um, the Doobie Brothers have always been a a kind of underrated band, but back when that album came out, they were very popular on the radio. Hmm. They were they played those songs a lot. Um, and you listen to them, and they were good. Yeah, it's a good. solid band. So, solid band, good music put together well, mm-hmm. great harmonies, and they had so much feel to it. And it was just, yeah, it was a great album. Just great music. Yeah, <laughs> it was just great music, and those guys were great musicians. And yep. they're still playing today. If you go on YouTube, you can still find them playing, and they still, I mean, they still sound good. So, yeah. <laughs> so, if you're looking for good podcasts, of course, you know you can always find Rage Against the Mainstream on uh, Facebook.com slash RATM Podcast, Instagram and Twitter at RATM Podcast, YouTube search Rage Against the Mainstream Podcast because we haven't gotten the subscriber account, uh, the subscriber count up enough to get our own personal URL, which hopefully happens sometime in the near future. Then, of course, uh, you can write to us, uh, retmpodcast at gmail.com. But until then, this is another episode of Rage Against the Mainstream Podcast for the books. Michael, I want to thank you again for coming on. Oh, and, thank uh, you for having me. It's fun. Oh, wait. I didn't even mention where Steve was this week. Where's Steve? <laughs> he's under the no. <laughs> Steve is, he's back at the bowling school out in, uh, I forget where it is. I think it's out in Kentucky or something along those lines. Yeah, but he's he's back at bowling school, and um, occasionally he'll be floating in and out. So you'll be seeing a revolving cast of um, hosts. But until then, this is Rage Against the Mainstream Podcast signing off. As always, I'm Bill. And I am Michael. Have a good night, guys. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>